This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, making you feel involved with the conversation without actually giving you the opportunity to participate in the conversation. Today we're talking about Neil Druckmann's cinematic video game franchise, The Last of Us, kicking off in 2013 with several subsequent releases and updates, including 2020's The Last of Us 2. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and I'm retaining distance from my fellow podcasters because you'll probably all just die or leave me anyway. I'm Erica Spires, and next week I have my first appointment with the one and only Dr. Uckman. And I'm Brian Hurt. And in preparations for today's episode, I got my oil and I got my rags. (laughs) (laughs) So I can shoot you right in the face and you can just clear that right up. For those watching for prop comedy that doesn't come through on a podcast, that is Trader Joe's olive oil and (laughs) old socks. (laughs) And our guest. I'm Drew Jackson and I'm definitely on Team Joel Was Wrong. Whoa. Biting words to start the program. Wow. Someone set up Last of Us and Last of Us 2 and establish how much we are or aren't spoiling in all of this. I think it's safe to spoil on this one. Yeah. I think everyone should take a quick 50 hours to play both games and then come back if they haven't played. So everyone pause (laughs) and proceed. (laughs) Brian, do you want to do the... uh... I think our guest is going to. Oh, go for it, Drew. Oh, sure. Yeah. So... Basic synopsis of The Last of Us is a bit of a take on the zombie plague scenario, although it's technically a fungus infection. The first game starts in Texas at the beginning of the outbreak, and then there's a big time jump where we start in Boston. The civilization has fallen, and our protagonist, Joel, is a smuggler charged with taking this girl, Ellie, who seems to be unable to be infected across the country to this group called the Fireflies, who are going to try to make a vaccine and study her. And now we will spoil the first game. (laughs) Joel does get Ellie there. And as she is about to be operated on, he overhears a conversation that they are going to have to kill her because they have to get into her brain and it's going to kill her, but it's going to save whoever is left on the earth. And so he rescues her. But in order to do that, he kills a bunch of people. Yes. And thus, we have been taken to Last of Us Part 2. Which takes place several years after the original game. Joel and Ellie now living in this sleepy community in the Pacific Northwest. And Joel runs into some people who he doesn't know at the time are specifically looking for him and seeking revenge. Now we're going to ruin the second game. Shortly after the opening of the game, Joel is murdered by this group of people who have come from Seattle to seek the revenge. We don't necessarily know what for, but as the game goes on, you find out exactly why they have it out for Joel. And then Ellie decides to, in turn, seek revenge against the people from Seattle. And that's the rest of the game. With the one caveat that part of the time you're playing Ellie and part of the time you're playing the main person that murdered Joel, whose name is... Abby! Mm -hmm. Abby. We're doing this when we are now because we thought about doing this before. It seemed like Brian wasn't going to get through the game. I had been playing it over the summer. Drew, I know, had been playing it heavily. Drew, how many playthroughs did you end up doing? two and a half. I'm a big trophy fanatic. So I had to do one playthrough standard, one new game plus playthrough, and then I had some cleanup for collectibles and the like. This referring to Last of Us 2, yes. Yes. And Erica, you spectated as usual? I spectated through the first Last of Us, which I loved. And then the second Last of Us I spectated through. And I did not really 
take an interest in spectating a second time. Actually, the second time and when he was doing trophy cleanup, he did a lot of it. It wasn't as beautiful to my eyes because this is a very accessible game for people who have colorblindness, among other things. And so Drew, in order to get all the collectibles, did it in one of those special... (laughs) Yes, I turned on colorblind mode so that it was very easy to see what the interactables were. Yeah, but not nearly as gorgeous uh, as what I I had already seen. Yeah. So Drew parked in a handicapped parking spot in order to complete this game and get the trophies. That's fabulous. Now, what I did was because I am so very bad at video games, especially ones that require skill, I took forever to play this game. And when you're a total incorrigible save scummer like I am, when the game claims you've played 30 hours, you've probably played 60 hours of game time because every time something would go wrong, I would restart the encounter so that I could get through without wasting a single bullet because resources were so scarce. And I just knew that as soon as it became a moment of having to fun and gun, I would just get gunned. So that was no good at all. But I got through it. I got through both games. Really glad to be talking about it. And boy, the idea of playing it a second time or a second and a half time just seems horrifying to me. But good on you. What about you, Mark? Yeah, well, that's a good way to think about this. As an appendix, I just went back this weekend and played most of The Last of Us DLC, which I think if I had played it after Last of Us 1 and before Last of Us 2, I would have liked it a lot better because it introduces some elements like Ellie is queer. That's interesting to know and tells her, you know, about how she found out she was immune and fills in a piece of The Last of Us where Joel has been unconscious, is dying, and she has to save him. It goes back and forth between those two things, both of which take place in a mall, incidentally, different malls. Too much of it was kind of old hat by the time I'd finished Last of Us 2 because part of the appeal is like that with her friend wants to be more than friend, doomed (laughs) confidant Riley during the flashback of what's happening before Last of Us 1. They're just doing fun things together for part of it to show what a close relationship they have. And we kind of already saw that in the flashback parts of Last of Us 2. So it just seemed like a slipshod, not as fun version. But that was my visit back. I also just kind of this morning discovered the official Last of Us podcast, which walks you through. So I listened to most of the treatment of Last of Us 1, walking you through the narrative and discussing with the actors and with the director and a few other people about some of the decisions that were made. So I feel very fresh on the story of really all three of these products. And one reason why we might have waited to do this, apparently there will be a TV show based on this sometime in 2021. So if Brian had not finished, we would have just waited and probably done it there. But I think this is an innovative enough video game enough narrative heft in itself, enough to discuss in itself that I'm kind of glad we're dealing with it now rather than waiting for the TV version where we would probably focus on that. And then we can just replay the episode. See? (laughs) (laughs) We can have a Last of Us 2 Part 2. Right. So why are we talking about this today? What was really special about this in particular? Because it's awesome, you guys. There are many amazing things about this video game, I think. But I think one of the main reasons it is so awesome is because somebody like me who does not generally play video games was so drawn to this property. We've had several friends who have done playthroughs with their family members because they enjoyed watching it so much. It's incredibly cinematic. They take a very long time to put these games together. 
It's interesting that both of them have been released as like one of the last big game releases before the new PS consoles come out. So it's kind of the best of that console, almost like they take their time. Am I wrong in saying that or is that correct? No, no. I think I play a lot of video games. I kind of have no scruples when it comes to them. I'll just play whatever. But I typically will like show Erica something that I'm playing and what struck me with her interest in The Last of Us was I was very used to just kind of, you know, showing her an introductory level and then like assuming I was going to play the rest thing by myself. So I was continuing the story and she came in from work one day and was just like, why are you playing our game? And that was like kind of the light bulb for me. I was like, oh, she actually really likes this. And I like it too. Like Naughty Dog, the development studio are fantastic at making great cinematic games. The Uncharted series was their biggest prior to that. And there's a lot of carryover there. There's some interesting contrast there too. The Uncharted series is kind of an Indiana Jones knockoff initially, right? You're just this adventurer who is kind of like a pulp comic. You know, he's very quippy and funny, and he ends up murdering a lot of people, and it doesn't really seem to have much of an effect. And The Last of Us is the exact opposite of that. Like, every death you have in that game feels meaningful, right? Like, when you kill someone in a search party, they have a name and people cry out looking for them. Or like in The Last of Us 2, spoiler, they had that you can kill dogs, right? And the dogs, yes, they're searching you out, but they're also just these people's pets. And when you kill them, they whimper, right? So there's heft there. One of the things that kind of gets critiqued a lot about The Last of Us series from some gamers is that they aren't fun, right? And if your approach to video games is that they should be an enjoyable time that makes you feel good, this ain't it. So for me, The Last of Us series is kind of this maturation of video games as a narrative form and being able to tell stories that are heavy, that don't necessarily make you feel good, but make you ask really deep questions about humanity. Brian, what did you think? I enjoyed the gameplay tremendously once I finally figured out how to do it. The act of progressing and going through the environment and beholding the environment as I did it was I had never seen anything quite that good on the PS4. And since, as you say, Erica, we're on to the PS5 now, we probably won't ever again as we move on to the next thing. I think what it really drove home for me is how much I generally don't like cinematic adventure games the way that I like role-playing games. These games like Skyrim or Fallout or Dragon Age, where you really get to play the story you want to play. Whereas this game, yeah, how I got to point A to point B in an encounter was my choice and I could kill or I could not kill if that was an option. But at every important point, I was pretty much just a spectator or I was whichever POV character I happened to play. If I was protagonist one or protagonist two, depending on where I was or what they chose to have me be, I had no choice but to keep carrying the story forward exactly the way that the game developer demanded I do that. I really just felt like, in a lot of cases, it was a participatory movie. And the only way I was going to progress was just to hit the beats that I it was demanded of me. Was I supposed to feel conflicted about the fact that, oh gosh, now I'm killing this person who I was just the protagonist 20 minutes ago. Well, I don't feel that conflicted. I have no choice if I want to proceed in this game. This isn't anything of my doing. I'm just clicking the buttons to get to the next scene. Not really my bag and not exactly how I want to spend 30 or, as I mentioned earlier, 60 hours. But good to know that about myself. What about you, Mark? So you raised two interesting issues here, quality as cinema and as quality as gameplay. Let's maybe talk about its quality as cinema first. I was thinking about comparisons to Walking Dead, right? Also a kind of drawn out, similar mood, zombies, drama, get involved with the characters, and probably a similar running time, you know, binging a few seasons of The Walking Dead versus playing this thing. But the fact that here you're focused on 
a very limited number of characters and that there is the repetitiveness involved in gameplay. Maybe if I was actually good, it wouldn't be so repetitive. But for me, it's not so much that I'm restarting on purpose. It's just that my approach in this game, at least, was initially just run in there and probably die and then just like figure out what I should have done to make me not die. Oh, okay. There's going to be a guy that's jumping on me from behind. I, maybe I shouldn't just run in there this time. I need to do something else. So it's kind of artificially as a cinematic experiment artificially extends things. But on the other hand, the cinema parts as compared to the walking simulator, death stranding. <laughs> mm-hmm. I never wanted to fast forward through these. And as compared to like, Fallout 4 or Skyrim, I was thinking about in either of those games, again, all these different companions that follow you around and they do start to repeat themselves after a while. Like it's kind of cool that they each have unique things that they say to you and ways that they react to what you do. But they really made a point in Last of Us that like this is actually how you're getting to know Ellie for part one. She's just talking to you throughout and it's interesting. She's calling attention to things in the landscape and you're getting to know her as a character and it really adds so much to the mood. There's never a fear that she's going to repeat some line. That's the price you pay for an open-ended world is you can't have infinite amount of dialogue from these NPCs that they'll keep saying interesting things. Right. Like in Skyrim, you constantly hearing about, you know, I was an adventurer like you until I took an arrow in the knee. That's just going to happen in a game that is so open-ended. Can you imagine one of the trophies in a Last of Us 2, I think, is having all the dialogues? To get all the dialogues in a game like Skyrim, you would have to hear all the dialogue like 17 times to hear every little snatch of text. So what did you guys think of this as a, so I guess this is mostly a question for Erica, that as a watcher, it would probably be really boring because there is so much like actual gameplay that you kind of have to pause for. Or is Drew just so good that he just never slowed you down? Surprisingly, I really didn't get that tired of it. Number one, yes, he is a very good gamer. So I'm I'm very lucky. I mean, I don't know that I'm lucky that you play games all the time, but I'm lucky when it goes to my benefit for a game like this, you can get through it pretty quickly. There were a few times I'd be on my phone doing something else while he was completing missions with Abby in particular when you start taking on Abby's character. Because at that point, we'd seen so much of that landscape already. So that part wasn't necessarily more interesting. I would say, though, it didn't really get tiresome to watch combat until, I don't know, several hours into the game. What, yeah. what, at what point would that have been? 20-something when you start playing as Abby? The first playthrough ended up being around 32 hours, and I think around 17, 18 is when we finally got to Abby. There was so much of this that reminded me of Metal Gear Solid 2, where you start as the main protagonist, Solid Snake, and then there's a big change where all of a sudden you're playing as this second character, and you get to play... Abby pretty early on too when she first runs into Joel and when you get to play her as the second time it's a much extended scene but there was something that I love that in the same way that I love Metal Gear Solid 2 where you're talking about this industry that is on par with film and movies and that you know it's billions of dollars of profit that this industry makes and yet here's this property that took years to develop and they take such a risk that the character that kills the main protagonist from the first game is a character that you will spend so much time with after the fact And like you were saying, Brian, the sense of agency, the story is the story, and you're just participating in it to forward it along. The game is making you see things from Abby's perspective and making you empathize, right? So like Neil Druckmann talked about the first Last of Us being a game about love, what you would do for love, and the second part two being what would hate be able to drive you to do. And the whole idea is just this cycle of violence and seeing how fruitless it is. 
I also really like helping him with some, well, as much as I can help in terms of strategy and how we would set up bombs, where we would set up bombs so we could kill this person, but then watch these people run this other direction. And then we would snipe from another direction. I'm thinking particularly around the hospital. Sure. To me, that was actually really quite interesting gameplay. As much as you're saying that there's not player agency to affect the story, there is like you can choose to be very stealthy about the way that you approach any given scenario or you can go in guns blazing like there is that flexibility. And you always killed the dogs. I killed everyone in the game. That's why I said I did enjoy the gameplay, because when I finally got okay at it, I figured out how to kill everybody right without firing a shot because I just got you learned how the game mechanic works. Originally, I didn't know anything about the game going into it beyond what I knew about the first game. So early on, you play Abby not knowing she's going to be the antagonist. And then it becomes clear that she is. And I thought, well, that was kind of a interesting, with a question mark, I say, fun thing to do is to put us in the shoes of this character that we now have to despise. Then when I found myself playing her again, about halfway through the game, I thought, oh, we're doing it again. And then when she first had to collect a medicine tablet or a part. And I realized, oh, fuck, I got to play this woman for this long. Like, this is happening. And all right, well, I guess this is a different thing that we're doing now. And I'm going to have to come to terms with walking in this character's shoes. And we have co-protagonists. It was an interesting thing to do. I didn't dislike playing Abby. I didn't have a connection to her the way I did with Ellie, just because she wasn't in the first game. But I didn't dislike playing Abby. I think some people, from what I've read, had a real negative reaction and just either had to force their way through. And it sounds like some people just gave up on the game when they realized that that's what the game was. Yeah. I was wondering, how did you guys feel emotionally? I know how it was for me when we had to play Abby at first. It's really, it was very frustrating. And then there came a point where I really liked her and wanted to see more of her. Yeah. So what was that like for you guys? Did you have that kind of connection to her in the end? Or Brian, it sounds like maybe you didn't, like you liked her fine, but was there a time when things kind of switched for you? It really helped to have her have playable flashbacks the way that we did with Ellie, to see her interact with her father and to realize that she is not too removed from being a girl herself, the way that Ellie also grew up too fast and that these are both women who have been forced to abandon their childhoods very quickly because of dire circumstances. I think the game was really successful at making us sympathize with both of them, which is why having to play one and the other squaring off. I didn't enjoy the fight scene in the theater, and I didn't enjoy the fight scene in the Pacific Ocean because I just didn't want to participate in them. It's fine they had to happen. I kind of wish I didn't have to hold the controls during them. I think that's what Neil Druckmann is getting at, right? Like those moments, you have to participate to forward the story, but they don't feel good to anyone. I'm his monkey. No, no question about it. I'm jumping through the hoops he's making me. To connect it to the original Last of Us, when Joel is going to save Ellie, you know, like the game allows player flexibility to a point, but when you go to rescue Ellie, you have to kill the doctor who's getting ready to operate on her. And spoiler, I guess, the doctor happens to be Abby's father. So you get to connect back to the original story in that way. And Joel, regardless of who's playing, Joel always kills that doctor. You can choose to leave the other attendants in the operating room be. I did not because I'm a monster. But to connect that to the original Last of Us, It's interesting when Naughty Dog chooses to give us agency and when it's taken out of our hands, right? When the player has control with the sticks and when we're just put in a cinematic. And Joel couldn't just kill all the witnesses and prevent the second game. I mean, I did. No, you didn't kill Abby because you didn't know you could. Apparently, apparently not all the witnesses. Yeah, yeah. How did you feel about that, Mark? Playing as both protagonists. I found it 
wanting to take some other action in the fight in the theater where you're actually beating on the character that you previously played. Other than that, I didn't have a problem with it. I thought that the message hit you over the head. There's just nothing subtle about it and could have got it a lot earlier. (laughs) Violence is bad. Revenge is bad. Oh, shit. That was the message. (laughs) No, I got to play it again. I'll pay more attention this time. It is on the nose. I think what's different about it, though, is that it made you do it and made you feel uncomfortable for a long period of time, right? Whereas I think you can do that in other games where you might know that your choice is like not the best and that you're making the choice to kill when you didn't necessarily have to in certain games. But that choice is then like it's over with. But this one felt gross that whole time. But doesn't it make you in a Milgram torture experiment sort of way? Sure. We elect to keep playing. We're being made to do it because we're gaining some kind of, is enjoyment the right word? We're getting some sort of experience out of it that is enriching us to keep us going. Otherwise, we really wouldn't do it. Well, that might be the difference that you as spectator, Erica, you don't get to have the thrill of knifing, you know, especially the zombies, but even the people, you know, as Ellie shanking them or knifing them in the face. And like, if that wasn't an enjoyable moment, the game would not work. That's the fundamental phenomenology of actually playing the game is that it has to actually feel fun to have these targets be scary enough or whatever that it's adrenalizing to take them out in whatever way you choose to do so. I think another thing it did well with that in in regards to whether or not it feels good, this game got a little bit more into who those bloaters were like in the hospital, right? And how long they'd been there and Wasn't there like a theory that the big one in the hospital Mm. was probably like that because they had access to all of these drugs that like made them bigger, but also more infected because like they hadn't been touched for how long? Yeah. You know what the character is referred to online or in speed runs? Uh, You will appreciate this as New Yorkers, I suppose. It's it's the Rat King is the boss Oh yeah. because I've watched speed runs on this is the big I think it's a bloater with a stalker kind of mushed together who you have to kill one and then the other. Oh, those stalkers were scary. Yeah. I disliked that part of the game most because it was just the most difficult for me. And it was just one of these like, oh, God damn, this, I'm, this is just exhausting. Like I die again and again and again. Okay. You see, I enjoyed it the most because it was the most like, well, there's no moral quandary here. I'm not killing a human of any kind. It's a monster. And when I finally beat it, (laughs) I was down to a couple millimeters of health left and I was all out of my weapons, but I finally got him. And that was great. And that was the most rewarding just from a gameplay standpoint for me to, to be able to beat a boss like that. It was the moment that felt like the most resident evil, right? Where it was like, oh my gosh, here is like a very cartoonishly monstrous character that we're not used to seeing. Like one of the things that I dislike about the zombie genre just at large. The zombies are an allegory for death, right? It's just a slow march that eventually consumes everything. But eventually what happens in all of these stories is, spoiler alert, the people are also bad. And so eventually it gets to the point where the zombies aren't even the threat anymore. It's just other people, which is kind of the central conflict of every story. So I feel like the zombies a lot of times just become this kind of existential threat, but not the one that the character is dealing with most presently. So I loved that scene because I was like, oh, great. Yes, this is the thing that I should really be terrified of. This is a monster that I'm fighting. I think it's easy to say that like maybe the central theme is just violence is bad. But I also think one of the things that Neil Druckmann is trying to explore is this idea of like good guys versus bad guys. Like no one is good. 
in The Last of Us, and no one is wholly bad. So it's kind of trying to show those gradations of most behavior is self-perpetuating, right? So people who experience violence tend to turn around and do violence to others. And what do they gain from that? And we get to see that Abby fulfills her revenge and realizes how hollow it is as she realizes that we are in the course of also having Ellie explore that same theme. And it's easy enough to say that, yes, violence is bad. Everyone knows that. But if you look at just human history, the way that we tell stories, violence is the primary way that we further most stories. Mm. Yeah, it's an obvious lesson, but it's, man, it's, if you look around the world, it's one that we definitely are still not learning. Well, it also seems to be the engine that drives history along as well. I mean, at a small scale and at a, at a large scale. You think when the DLC, I know there won't be any, but if they had DLC where you got to play a Rattler, if that indeed was the name of the gang in Santa Barbara, is there some good in those people too? I mean, can we really say that? Those slaveholders. <laughs> that, that's right. I mean, it's still a game and things are still done cartoonishly. I think we were given two very dimensional characters who are easy to see as negative from the outside and positive from the inside. But I think that was also done very intentionally to get the message across to us. I still feel like we have cartoon characters in this. I think you're right, Brian. Like one of my big critiques when I finished it was like, you know, you feel like you get to understand Abby and where her crew's coming from, but you don't get that sympathy at all with the Rattlers. And I was like, man, these people are just straight up bad. And that kind of does, I agree with you, undercut the central theme of the story is all of a sudden you just meet these people who if someone's trying to escape, they'll just turn you into a zombie and chain you up and like make fun of you. We also didn't get to know a whole lot about the... The Seraphites. I mean, we, we learned some. The, the Seraphites, yeah. right? We got to know the two main characters from the Seraphites, or former Seraphites, as it became. That, to me, would be also a very interesting story to explore further and see how that came to be, because clearly that would be something that happens in a post-apocalyptic world, as certain people turn very much towards religion and dogma. So who are the Whistlers? Was the, that the Seraphites? The Seraphites, yeah. Okay. All right. They just had things like that. Even though you were supposed to like these two young characters who have broken away, they just make it so you really want to kill all of the, you know, with their creepy religious stuff all over the place. And they're so bigoted. That's why these characters are driven out anyway. So yeah, we should design some DLCs where, you know, you play a, a rattler and he's kind of picked on by the other rattlers and maybe he has irritable bowel syndrome. You didn't know before you shot him that he, <laughs> he was having some troubles there and you can just really sympathize with him. We know what he's going to do with the rags. <laughs> yeah, rags and tape. All right. I just always so ambivalent about attempts to make things more realistic when video games are just not realistic. <laughs> And how these things interact with each other. The fact that you're supposed to feel the drama of these moments of violence and things. But yet, not only are you put in a situation where you're killing person after person after person, they do try to make that into narrative something. But like the crafting, that you're just constantly looking around for rags and pieces of scissors. And yet you can only end up making four things. And just the upgrading your skills. There's no narrative defense for I suddenly I can decide whether I'm going to listen better or I can make more powerful. Like, are you stopping to work? <laughs> I found a Guns and Ammo magazine and this bottle of Flintstones vitamins. Yeah. Where, where else do you find out how to make incendiary shotgun rounds? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they did their best. I don't know. Were there any points where something seemed wrong in the suspension of disbelief department for you as you were playing? There are lots of narrative constraints just because it is a game and there has to be some sort of player agency involved, right? Like in the very beginning of The Last of Us Part 2, when you play as Abby, boy, what dumb luck does she have that she just runs into Joel and his brother? 
that's not even just a suspension of disbelief needed at a gameplay level, but it's just like, it's such lucky happenstance. Even if you saw it in a movie, you'd be like, oh, is that really likely that the first people that they run into from this camp happen to be one of the people that they are looking for? Brian, what do you think? I mean, is this a, just a, even a dumb question to ask? <laughs> like, of course, suspension of disbelief is going to be a weird thing in games. Why would you expect it to be? There's no sort of standard, whereas a movie, you can see something and like, that doesn't ring true what that character did or whatever. But in the interaction between game mechanics and on-screen plot, like, it seems like there are no standards. It's just a matter of each game developer has to find a balance that seems to work for players. I think it goes beyond video games a little bit, Mark, in that when things seem a little unbelievable or fantastic. That's why we're getting this story and not someone else's. I'm not saying Ellie is the only person who has immunity. There might be someone else and she just got run over by a bus. And so we're not going to see that story because that one ends quickly. We're seeing this one because it goes well enough for her that there's something to bother watching. We want to see the extraordinary stories. I think if there aren't enough game mechanics, no one's going to want to play this thing. And I think there are games that have, you talked about Death Stranding, where there's so much stuff that goes on, way more than this one in my experience. I didn't get as far into it. Too many cinematics and you just don't want to play at all because it's, now I'm just watching a movie and this isn't that good a movie. So I didn't have any particular problem with it. As crafting games go, I didn't think this was nearly as complicated as others in terms of getting stuff and making ingredients to then make things. I mean, this was quite a bit simpler. Well, how great that it alerts you. Like, you finally have enough to build something. Why don't you click over and see what you have enough to build? And they're all very clearly labeled. It's never like, I have to go searching for some particular thing because you're steered in a particular direction. You should probably be being careful and looking in every drawer anyway. The fact that you can be full. Oh, I just can't carry another rag. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I could fit more of this kind of bullet, but you can't carry more of that kind of bullet. You're full up. Are you implying, Mark, that when you light a Molotov cocktail and then decide not to throw it, you can just safely put it back in your bag? <laughs> well, you lick your that's, fingers and yeah. it's like a birthday candle. So that's been my experience. Yeah, there, there are definitely those kinds of moments where it's just like, all right, yeah, that's a gameplay mechanic that doesn't make a lot of sense. But that would be an interesting thing that they could choose not to do, right? Like you light a Molotov cocktail in your hand and you have to throw it. You cannot put it out. That would be an interesting gameplay mechanic that they chose to take a pass on and forgive the player for pulling out a Molotov and not making them throw it. The thing that always drove me nuts, it was just a very nitpicky thing, but I feel like it was super obvious and they didn't have to do, is to have a working lamp at every single crafting station. (laughs) Why aren't you just using the light that's available to you by the sky, right? Like, where is this power source coming from and why are they in such random places? Yeah. You get used to just clicking on everything because it's going to be some ammo or some whatever you need. But then the crafting stations like, oh, no, if you click on that, then it sucks you into this whole thing and people can shoot you while you're doing that. (laughs) So it became kind of an annoyance that like, oh, God damn, I didn't mean to click on the crafting station. Yeah, (laughs) I'm just trying to walk by and grab another piece of paper off the ground or whatever. Right. One thing that I think changes this game from just being harsh and a slog to get through and making you sad is that it has beautiful flashback cinematics that make you feel really good about the characters and connect you to them. So you realize it's like, you know, some people wonder about when you go see a piece of theater, like when I'm coaching kids and we talk about raising the stakes. 
And they feel silly because they're like, well, yeah, but it's just like this person loves this person. And they just want to be loved back. I was like, yeah, but what if we have to keep saying, but what if this is the last time you're ever going to see that person? And what if blah, 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 right? Because the thing is with a piece of theater, you get two hours basically to tell a story. And so you're picking probably the most dramatic or traumatic story that you can because that's where you're going to learn the most, right? Similarly, in this game, you get a lot of those heartfelt moments, I think, to help not just balance out the hard stuff, but to show you the stakes that are involved with what happens when you're going after vengeance. Why would you go for vengeance in the first place? Because in this world, when you've lost everything else and you have that one person and that one person is all that really matters to you, then yeah, it makes total sense that you might want to murder everybody who had anything to do with that person's death. Because there's nothing left in this world except that person. That's a lot of things to say about what do you think of those cinematics going, those flashbacks? Because <laughs> uh, they were so lovely. And I don't know that you cried, but you definitely teared up during a couple. To tie it back to, you know, like everyone talks about in the first Last of Us, the giraffe scene where, you know, you've had this long slog where you're just trying to get to the other side of the country. And Ellie and Joel happen upon just a bunch of, I don't know, what is it a herd of giraffes? Is that what their their animal grouping is called? <laughs> I think so. Um, just out in the wild, right? And Ellie gets this moment where she can choose to pet one. And it's this really lovely break in all of the sadness and fighting zombies that there's just this moment of beauty that they get to take part in. And similarly, you get this flashback with Ellie and Joel. Joel surprises Ellie, who's a kid who's very much into space and science, with going to this kind of natural history museum and getting to see dinosaur bones reconstructed and getting to see an original landing module from the operations that NASA did to the moon and stuff like that. And so those kinds of moments do kind of give you the good feels that kind of are the contrast to all the horrible things that the game makes you do. The fact that you can't actually proceed in the game you're not collecting bullets or regs or anything, but you're still drawn to play these. I guess you get artifacts, whether it's comic books or coins, is a testament to just how effective they are. And the scene with her listening to the Apollo 11 launch as she's laying in the capsules, that was really great. And there was so much going on between the characters, understanding their relationship is sort of falling apart before your eyes, but they're still having this sweet moment together. I, I thought those were really good. And I don't think the main characters would be nearly as likable, either one of them, without those flashback scenes. And I have a little The More You Know moment. It's called A Tower of Giraffes. Oh. Thank you, Google. What? Wow. I know. That's really That's cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. I've been sitting here thinking of silly versions of that to put forward. A squat is it, of giraffes. Is it a fun jar of giraffes. It is a buttload of giraffes. What? My favorite is always a murder of crows. I just love that grouping name. What is the uh, grouping name for these zombies? I think they are herds in Walking Dead, but they. Yeah. yeah. It's a grand old party of zombies. Wait, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> these zombies do not just walk around they tend to shudder in the corner uh, until they're disturbed and then they run at you you know in the in 28 days later style or world of z is that another one where, oh, world war z yeah world yeah. war z yes yeah. one of the things i learned on the official podcast was that having different types of zombies was actually super late in the game design of last of us one because it wasn't going to be that big a deal it was like it's all about the human drama and yes they have to deal with zombies 
but you don't have in Walking Dead, at least I can't think offhand, the bloaters and you just have zombies that have been decayed in different ways. I guess like, oh, so there's if someone's been dead under the water for a long time, then they'll have a different look. But they all have basically the same abilities. I guess they introduced irradiated zombies in the Fear the Walking Dead series. I guess when their jaws and uh, hands are removed, they become docile, right? That Michonne was a, which had some pet zombies. Yeah. Because once yeah. they have lost their ability to attack, they lose their will to eat people. So what do you guys think about these varieties of, you know, it's the creeping spore. That's sort of the advantage that you can have whatever kind of weird ass corruption you want. Maybe I need to read more online lore, but I felt like why somebody would corrode into a particular kind of zombie was not clear to me. I completely forgot about how interesting this was. They're based on carpenter ants. Mm. There's a parasite called, let me see, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) Right? That was actually pretty good. Primarily infects carpenter ants in the forests of Brazil and Thailand. Spores burrow beneath their exoskeleton, eating them from the inside and hijacking their nervous system. The ant is compelled to walk away from a hive, climb a plant, and bite the underside of a leaf with their mandibles. There, the fungus consumes their host entirely, and a flesh-fruiting body sprouts from the ant's skull and bursts, raining down a fresh cloud of spores to infect more ants. For carpenter ants, Ophiocordyceps is a very real zombie apocalypse that can wipe out entire ant colonies without certain countermeasures. Well, that's very creative. And then there are ant clickers and ant bloaters and ant shamblers. The clickers are probably the ones that are most grounded in that scenario, right? Where like eventually they lose the ability to see because the fungus has become so advanced that it starts sprouting out of their head. But yeah, you're right. Like there's really no grounding as to why there are bloaters and they just shoot out spores periodically. It was never clear if there was a life cycle, if they would go from being a runner to a clicker, for example, and we only ever encounter them in these short little time frames. Right. Certainly it was implied that, you know, the more of this fungus, then the worse off they would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at least we can say that much. But yeah, do they grow that way over time? Can you grow your own clickers by burying a bunch of the less harmful ones in spore land? I'm interested to get your guys' thoughts on some of the zombie tropes that aren't there, right? Like, especially in The Last of Us Part Two, there's no, oh, someone's been bitten. What are we going to do? That's something that is just completely not anything that's touched on, right? Like you're not traveling with a companion and all of a sudden someone's been bitten and they've hidden it from you. Drew, I seem to remember reading something, an artifact where someone talks about someone was bitten and they were going to try to do a amputation. But I think that your takeaway as the player is, yeah, good luck with that, pal. There's no idea. Like all the people who are, oh, I'm holding up, I'm holding up and I think things will be all right as long as you come back with some medicine. It's like, yeah, I'm... I'm eating your vitamins because you're done. <laughs> yeah. The idea of there are talking zombies in different shows, or there's at least some semblance of intelligence beyond simply animal. We don't see any of that. I feel like they're just eating us, not eating our brains specifically. And I don't feel like killing them has to do with killing them in the brain specifically either. This whole fascination of intelligence and whether it's our intelligence that separates us from being a zombie is just not really part of how this particular game approaches it. Yeah, when the one young boy character in the first game kind of asks the question, what if the people are still in there? Then you're just invited to scoff at that, that this is not a serious thing. I suppose that's the same thing even on Walking Dead or something that, you know, characters have that question early on and like that is quickly dispelled. In that case, with an actual neurological scan, we're going to show our characters and the audience 
neurological scans of people turning into zombies. Look how the brain is dying there. They're dead. (laughs) But it's a real fascination that characters have. And even in Walking Dead, the governor was trying to run experiments on people the moment they turned into a zombie to see if there was still anything in there, right? Because he didn't have his wife. He was head squirreled away. His daughter, yeah. Or his daughter. Okay. So I think it's helpful. Do they ever utter the Z word in this game at any point? Do we refer to to these as zombies? Much like The Walking Dead avoids the word as well. Is there any comic relief? They say some quippy lines, but there doesn't seem to be any character that is a comic relief in this. (laughs) Right, right. Any of these things? Am I misremembering something? No. No. Zoic zombies coming this way. (laughs) (laughs) No, really not. Like there's the loner, Billy, I think is his name, who has kind of gone a little crazy from being on his own too long. So there's eccentric characters, let's put it that way, that can introduce some comic relief. Sure. Having played the two games pretty closely together, likely more than you, Drew, and I Mm -hmm. don't know about you, Mark, I feel like there were more interesting gameplay variants in the first one. There was a point where you were actually in a sniper's nest and there the game became a little different and you were gunning people down from a distance and there was a part where you're hanging upside down and having to shoot zombies while you're in a trap and at one Mm -hmm. point you're trying to avoid a tank that's rolling down the street that can totally gun you down i don't think this game had as much of those variations this one had more thrilling locations i mean high over seattle was totally nerve-wracking and are you afraid of heights uh yeah and so that got you huh yeah, I was getting out the, the rags and the tape on that one. Oh, gross. <laughs> We're bringing it back, huh? The rags and the tape. Not, not letting go of that one. <laughs> I thought the first one was a little bit more inventive mm. with gameplay. Yeah, and even like the kind of light platforming and puzzle solving that you had to do as Joel traversing a world in which Ellie couldn't swim through the entire game. Of course, they made like a big point in gameplay of The Last of Us Part Two of when Ellie finally gets in the water and swims and there's like Joel pushes her in in a flashback. And that's how you get reintroduced to, yes, she's finally learned how to swim. But you're right. That's something that was just kind of completely missing from the second game that was very present in the first. You know, something I really appreciated in the second game, I didn't so much notice in the first game, is you can't fall down a ladder. It just doesn't let you. So many other games that I play... Like, oh, unless you position yourself just right and you hit the thing to go down the ladder, you'll just walk into the ladder hole and fall down and take a bunch of damage. So the fact that this was a considerate enough game, you know, that it was well designed, you know, that's ultimately the appeal of a lot of it is that it just kinesthetically feels nice to walk around and do these things. Even the way the environment seemed more open ended than they were. I mean, I'm the kind of player that I want to investigate the dead ends first. So I'll always like turn into the little narrow part of the hallway that you can see the end of it and see, is there an object down there or something? Probably not. Probably just something they added. But so many of these like open-ended street areas at least gave you the illusion that there's somewhere else you could go, even though, oh, there's actually a, I don't know why I can't climb this leafy wall. (laughs) You know, it seems like there have been other things that have been similar that I've been able to go up. But, you know, that's just going to be a restriction in all games. And this was well designed in that respect. You can't climb it because it is leafy. (laughs) That's how you know you can't climb it. Well, there are a couple things that we should maybe mention before we wrap up. Representation in this game, so many different types of representation, but also the people who were hired to voice act this game were incredible. Just really wonderful actors in their own right and voice actors of the highest degree. 
people like Laura Bailey, who played Abby, unfortunately has gotten a ton of flack for this, even though she did a beautiful job and got death threats. And, you know, Mark, you had said one of our talking points might be issues of representation and and did did they do enough? And well, no, probably not. But it's kind of like the McDonald's of... (laughs) of the video game industry is like, let's do something different. And then everybody will probably still jump on us because we brought something different. So yes, they're bringing themselves into the light to be criticized in a way. But it's really frustrating because they did do a lot. And of course, more can be done. And they had such strong female characters of very different ilks all over the place. They weren't tropey females. Mm -hmm. I waste a lot of time on Twitter. And there were a bunch of leaks that came out about the game before it actually released. And there was a lot of controversy about knowing that there was going to be a trans character in this game. And it was one of those things that actually kind of divided video game Twitter, had the more liberal side of Twitter upset, as well as the more conservative side of Twitter upset, which was really interesting because the trans character in this game at one point gets dead named by one of the Seraphites. And that made a lot of people that you know I follow that are very much entrenched in the LGBT community really upset. But it was kind of brought about a question of like, well, how else are we supposed to even know that that's kind of and it's not like the trans experience of that character, in my point of view, was being exploited per se. But how else were they going to give you the notion of why are these two running away from the Seraphites, right? Like that was the central reason of why they were leaving the Seraphites and why Abby runs into them, right? And then you had people on the other side who were just really, for whatever reason, incensed that Abby was very muscular. For some reason, there's this idea that women don't look like that. And I mean, you just have to search CrossFit athletes to find that, yeah, there are tons of women who are absolutely shredded and could probably take most men. Like, that's just a fact. That's something that I thought was interesting was that they were taking a risk on a big budget video game of having the two protagonists that you play as are women. And they're not Laura Croft kind of, you know, buxom women. They are just women who are people in the world. And one's a little wafy and the other one is cut. Yeah. I think that representation, you know, part of it is understanding they're still in a world where this is a struggle. And Lev is dead named, and I don't remember if it's Ellie who, towards the end in a flashback, is referred to as a loudmouth dyke. But the struggle is still real in their world, too. And I think that's part of being a fully represented character in a still fully realized world. Just as people don't band together as a whole, they still are as territorial and as violent as ever when faced with a common enemy. They hold on to a lot of their same old fears and hatreds across the border. I thought it was great to see fully realized characters in any way we can get them and all things being equal. Like, yeah, let's have women and people who aren't just cis binary and and the rest of it. I think it's great. So I don't know if it'll be a trend. I could see developers looking at this and saying, I don't know if I want this kind of grief if I don't need it. But at the same time, it's hard to argue with success in some ways. How well did this, I didn't never looked at the numbers. Did this game succeed financially the way that other big titles have? Is it as big a success as I think it is? I know sales wise, it did really well. And critically, it was really well received. You know, one of the biggest video game news sites that I follow about IGN, like gave it a 10 out of 10. You know, there are a few 10s every year, but this was... Definitely one of the games that I think is most going to be brought up in the Game of the Year conversation. June 26th, Video Games Chronicle says Lasso's 2 has sold 4 million copies, breaking Sony's PS4 record. We'll call that a success. 
I noticed on Metacritic, the reviewer scores were very high and then the user scores were quite a bit lower, I assume because of reviewer bombing going on from people who have an axe to grind. I think this is actually one of the things that Metacritic started instituting a period of time in which there couldn't be user ratings because this one got review bombed so heavily. Like as soon as the game released, it was all of a sudden just getting review bombed. It's like clearly these people haven't actually played the game to completion, if at all. I tend to think that these kind of controversies are just temporary and that its legend will outlast them. I think we're going to get in a point. I I noticed that the initial version of this was for PS3 and it was immediately remastered a year later for PS4. I wonder how much the norm that's going to become in terms of we are seeing more and more remasters for whatever the, the current technology of classic games that you could play Dark Souls 1 or Demon, you know, those those kind of things without having to experience that clunkiness of the original. But yeah, no, I could see that really becoming a, I don't know if a problem, but a prominent, prominent thing if we have people doing the umpteenth remaster of a game that's 40 years old (laughs) and how that crowds out new things. One of the things that Naughty Dog had like mentioned when they were doing The Last of Us remaster is there was a big shift in the CPU architecture from the PS3 to the PS4, right? Like the PS3 had this proprietary cell processor in which they bifurcated the chip and required half of it to be dedicated to graphics and half of the chip's processing to everything else, right? And the PS4 shifted to a much more kind of general PC architecture in which developers could run the gamut with how much of the processing they wanted to allocate on that CPU. So maybe it's not as likely with the PS4 to PS5 jump because the architecture is similar in terms of its processing ability. So it seems like there are going to be a lot more kind of like backwards compatibility between PS4 and PS5 that just wasn't possible in PS3. I'm still looking forward to The Last of Us 2050. <laughs> it is the, uh, the same game, but they fix it up and the AI is better and the who knows what, what all they'll get into. Well, let's wrap up. Thanks so much, Drew, for coming back and joining us for this one. We knew that Erica's uh, experience would not be complete without hearing from her other half. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was really great. I'm grateful for being pushed to play this game because I did enjoy it. I think if Erica had watched me, she really would have enjoyed watching me crawl through the grass. Because <laughs> I did a lot of crawling through the grass. Stay in one of the part of the grass for a long time, trying to wait for enemies to go away. Or That's totally how I would play it. I would be so scared. I would just, I would just hide. Hide and snipe. Hide and snipe. All right. Thanks, listeners. We're going to keep talking a little more about this and related stuff in the after show. You can get that at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. So long. Bye. Bye, listeners. Thanks. Get more pretty much pop at pretty much pop.com. Pretty much pop is part of the partially examined life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.